Kia ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, he kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. Timeless Tales The traditions of fable and myth, from Ovid's Metamorphoses, the tales of Aesop and Grimm, Homer's Iliad, and the Puraco of Polynesia, to name a few, have acted as compasses for millennia, exploring human experience and answering timeless questions. Join two contemporary New Zealand writers at the height of their powers, Commonwealth Prize winner and Man Booker shortlisted Lloyd-Jones and 2022 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards Jan Medlicott Acorn Prize Fiction winner Titi Heriaka in conversation with Claire Maybe to interrogate the history and power of these ancient storytelling forms and why each has chosen them for their recent narratives. Inga mana, inga reo, inga iwi, tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Claire Maybe tōku ingoa, tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome to this session called Timeless Tales with Fiti Hiriaka, award-winning novelist and playwright. Nati Tufaritoa, Te Arawa, Nati Fakoe, Tuharangi Pakia, won a New Zealand Children and Young Adults Book Award for the novel Legacy. And her novel, the one we'll be discussing today, Kurangaituku, won the Jan Medlicott Acorn Prize for Fiction at the 2022 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. God bless Jan. Thank you. <laughs> and, and Lloyd-Jones, whose books include the Commonwealth Prize winner and Man Booker shortlisted Mr Pip, the Berlin International Literature Prize shortlisted Hand Me Down World, and the New York Times notable book biography. And of course, he is the author of the latest novel and subject of conversation today, The Fish. Welcome, Lloyd. Um, my name is Claire Maybe. I'm the founder of Verb Wellington. And some housekeeping. I'm told you to please have your phones on silent, to wear a mask for the safety of yourself and others. And if you would like to share stuff on social media, please do so with the consideration of your fellow audience members in mind. So today we're here to discuss the history and power of ancient storytelling forms in relation to the groundbreaking novel, Kurangaituku by Fiti Hiriaka, and Lloyd-Jones' very beguiling novel, The Fish. Both books, to my mind, are about the nature of storytelling themselves, why we tell things, how we tell them, who does the telling, and why that's important. And before we get started, our authors are going to do a reading from the novels to get us into the world of both books. Fiti, could you please read? Kia ora. Tēnā koutou. I usually stand up, but I'm, I'll try it from sitting down. I'm a creature of words. I am a creature of imagination. I live on the edges of dreams and the margins of thought. I live in the whisper of the page. It is selfish then, the story. I want to be heard. I want to exist again, at least in your mind. I need to tell you this story so that you'll let me in and I can breathe again. Kia ora. Beautiful, thank you. Yep. Yeah. 
Uh, it's kind of unusual. I'm reading almost from the end of the book instead of the front of the <laughs> book. But we, we were told just one paragraph, so this is it. Uh, fish, we call them. His halfway intelligent bearing, his eyes that did not close. He often looked like he was listening to himself think. He invited scrutiny. Whenever you looked at him, the points of his eyes shifted further apart as if he was aware of the mystery of himself and was making space for our curiosity. Right from the first time we picked him up and later when we held him, there was a transfer of interest where the fish began to return the same curiosity to us. In the end, it had come down to who was first to get the story down. Thank you, Lloyd. I wanted short paragraphs because there is so much to talk about today. And also, I think both of those passages tell us something about point of view. And both of these novels are hugely reliant on who is telling the story and why they're telling it. And we're working with two very different books that have a lot of intersections. And The Fish, we could say, falls in a tradition of allegory or magic realism. It interplays with other texts that have mythological status, like Homer is mentioned. And then we have Kurangaituku, which is a pūrāko from a te ao Māori world. And I wanted us to start by looking at that distinction. Mm. And I wondered, Fiti, if you could tell us about what do you think about myth in relation to pūrāko? Yeah, so sometimes when I'm talking about kurangaituku, um, people want to put it in the realm of myth, and I usually kind of push back at that. Yes, it is sort of mythical, but purako are different from myth. Purako encompass uh, histories. They encompass living stories. They're stories that continue to live. They're part of whakapapa. Um, they're part of the world that we're in now. And sometimes if I'm feeling particularly salty, which is often, um, <laughs> I will, I'll argue that putting Māori pūrāko in the category of myth often puts it in the kind of category of children's stories. And in that way, it's another way to subjugate Matauranga Māori is another way to say, yeah, that, that was good back then, but it doesn't apply now. So, yeah, depending on how salty I'm feeling, I seem to be feeling salty today because I brought it up myself. Um, I'll, talk, <laughs> I'll talk about that. So, yeah, it's, there are people who are alive who whakapapa to both Hatupatu and Kurangaituku. So it's important um, that it's not this, this thing that lives in the past. It is still a living, breathing entity. Thank you. I think it's a really important distinction to make as we go into these books and talk about them in depth. So Lloyd, I, I wanted to ask you about The Fish. It's, it's a story about writing itself. The narrator is a writer and he tells us this explicitly. And interestingly, I wanted to bring up the child's point of view. I think it's a really important part of the book. And I wanted to ask you... Why did you write it? What, what, <laughs> why did you do this book? Where did it come from? And I wanted to add to that question. For me, it felt like a continuation of your memoir, A History of Silence, and I wondered if, if there was a connection. Ah, well, that's very astute. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yes. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that in a second, if I may. But I just, just as Fiddy was talking about that, that distinction you were making, and I, I had a little epiphany actually when I was reading your book, and it was uh, we were talking about it just before when I encountered the Kotuku as mm. a as a sort of a um, totemic sort of creature that really placed your story here mm. in New Zealand. Can't be anywhere else. No. It's, it's 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 here. Whereas my story um, really comes out of uh, sort of the world of literature. It's it's sort of it's story from the world of story. You make the point who is telling this story and why. Very important. That relationship between what is told and who is telling it um, creates the tension and the reason and the urgency for a story to be told in the first place. Absolutely right. Um, where did the fish come from? Um, um, out, of, out, of, well, out of the ocean, um, <laughs> out of a, a familial disquiet. Um, um, in this in this story, uh, the narrator the story begins with him as a child and ends with him being somebody about my age. So the story is being worked out as the narrator ages, I suppose. Um, and the key word, I think, maybe um, he's naming as he comes into the world. He's he's naming the, wor the world, and and his older sister asks him to be his correspondent. Well, tucked into the word correspondent is correspondence, the equivalent of the parallel. And he's asked to describe a world that he's not privy to. Um, he cannot see it in its entirety. Um, and so when his sister um, has, a, has a, a, a baby, it's a fish, because he's been asked to describe what is inexplicable. Where has this baby come from? Who is the father? And all the rest of it, you know. Um, kind of reverses the Kafka story where Gregor goes to bed mm. as a man and wakes up an insect. Well, we start with a fish and he morphs into a, a human being a little bit. As to um, your very astute connection with family story, yes. Um, for, for a long time, the fish was floating around in my imagination and I, th I couldn't really make any mm. sense of it. And I, I tried to bring it back to my own personal circumstances. And... Um, my family, my I'm the my siblings are a generation older. The next oldest one was a sister who was ten years old, older than me, and um, and she had a baby when she was about seventeen. And my parents put her in a caravan um, at um, Hut Park Motor Camp, which all seemed quite normal, by the way. <laughs> um, so anyway, as soon as I I sort of made this connection. I knew what I was. I knew what I was writing about. I knew why the fish was circulating in my mind. That business of bringing two different things mm. in opposition together suddenly things happen. Yeah. Yeah. I know you said that it, it was. Sorry. <laughs> I know you said that it was Go like a, a story of literature, and it is. And I love the play on, on words that you um, sprinkle throughout, like you just did with correspondence. But I do think it is of New Zealand as well. There's a very particular, I'm not going to spoil the ending, but it is of Wellington. Mm, 
well, certainly. Yeah, particularly. Well, the Wahine storm, of course, was, you know, yeah. I didn't want to say that, but you said it. (laughs) (laughs) You can spoil it. Yeah, I don't know why I disguise it as obviously the Wahine storm. I don't know why I just didn't say the Wahine. But But I feel like your book is very of this place, too, as well as being of of literature, as all stories are, I guess. I'd love to come back to the world building. Vincent O'Sullivan, by the way, did say that your writing in those passages about the Wahine disaster was the best he's ever read. And I think one of the reasons is that it has this very slippery, unknowable nature to to those passages, which is a continuation of the whole theme of the book, is these gaps that are are unable to be Well, that's a very questionable compliment from Vincent because it's the only bit of writing about the Wahine. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps in fiction. We'll come back to this, this question too. Yeah. But Fitty, I, w- I wanted to ask you, why, why this Pūraku? I One thing I loved, and, and this is kind of is going to the child point of view, but but you dedicate this book to a little hōha yeah. self. Yeah, I'm a little hōha. You're the little hōha. <laughs> I'm the little hōha. So, so wh- why, this, why this story? Because I was that little hōha. Um, so I grew up in Taupo, obviously, if you heard my whakababa from all around the central um, plateau. We had whānau in Rotorua, and the McDonald's was in Rotorua as well, <laughs> when I was a kid. So we'd go to Rotorua all the time from Taupo. Always stop at the rock, always stop at the rock. And then like that story just came tumbling out. So why, oh, Dad, why do we have to stop at the rock and give money? And you know, you <laughs> tell the story. Um, but also my mum had a copy of The Read. I think it was the illustrated copy with the really scary picture of Kurangaituku in it. So I grew up with the story and it was just kind of always there. And then Kurangaituku came and wouldn't leave me alone. It said, you have to write this, basically. Just keep <laughs> kept telling me her story. Um, and part of it, I think, was... I'd gone to the International Writing Program in Iowa, in America, and there were all these amazing women um, from places where writing is dangerous, where writing their own stories was dangerous. Um, Having a voice could put them in jail or, or worse, get them killed, but they just did it anyway. They told their story, and I was like, yeah, it's this power in claiming your story and telling your story. So that was part of the motiva- motivation too. It was kind of these, all these ideas that come from the universe, I guess, coming together. Hmm. It's and interesting. Sorry, Claire. That, um, <laughs> I love this. My job is done. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I was just thinking how you, you, you gather experience just in the course of, of living. Yeah. And at some point it gets used. And you, you talking about um, travelling between Rotorua and Taupo and stopping at the rock and this sort of thing, probably never imagining that one day you would write about it. No. But nonetheless, it, it becomes lodged in you, very much like the Wahine storm was in me. You never know when something is just going to bubble to the surface or find that thing mm. that needs to, to spark it into life. Those lovely connections, mm. which is like what your book's about too. 
But you do very deliberate things with her voice. I do. You, um, <laughs> you say, I mean, she do. says, it is a privilege to be heard and one that not many are allowed. There are always those who will speak for others to, ca- to take control of the narrative. In my absence, Hatupatu told her story, my voice was erased entirely. Mm. And this book feels like a, a, a massive response to that. Yeah, yeah. And it's a massive response to Purako in general not being told. Um, and the ones that we have that have been told and have been published are published from a very narrow point of view, from a male-centric point of view. There are Purako, but like our Atua, all the Atua that we commonly know are male. We don't, we have to dig for the feminine voices. Mm. So, yeah. That's part of me kind of rebalancing, I guess, um, from a te ao Māori point of view. Sometimes people say, oh, it's a very feminist book. And yes, yes it is, but also no. Um, because from, like from a te ao Māori point of view, there doesn't need to be feminism as we know it in the Western world because we are striving for balance all the time. So I'm kind of, for me, it's more of a decolonised book than a feminist book. Is that why you also tell... Hatupatu story? Yeah. Yeah, because that needed that balance. Mm. Um, <clears throat> there was a point in time when Hatupatu story was out of the book as well. Um, for various reasons. It's, it's a bit slow at times. So, like, it comes in the middle and end <laughs> of the book. Yeah, tricky, tricky. Um, so it could, it could, you know, slow down the action, as it were. But I took it out when I lost my bottle because originally I had I'd wanted the, to do this f- for a long time, um, and then oh sorry for people who haven't read it that was probably very confusing. Um, <laughs> you can start from either side of the book, so you can start from the end or the end, mm. and you read to the middle, and then you flip the book over, and then you read through again. Um, it's groundbreaking in so many ways. <laughs> yeah, thank you, but also not in other ways. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of going back to how Purako are told. Um, so, yeah, I always, when I had that idea, I knew that the Hatupatu story had to be in the middle as a bridge, as sort of a, a almost a palate cleanser between the two worlds. But I lost my bottle a bit, and I was like, okay, no, I'm just going to write it like a normal novel. What are you doing? This is too ambitious and gimmicky. So I took it out and then I noticed I'd done such a good job, I guess, at weaving um, some of the themes through that when I took out the Hatupatu story, I had to do a whole bunch of explaining of things that I didn't have to do when the Hatupatu story was in there. So I couldn't just pull it out. It left all these kind of wounds that I needed to suture. (laughs) And yeah, in the end I was like, ah. He needs to be in the story because, yeah, it is what you had in mind. It is that balance thing. Mm. You're talking about balance there, and I had a sense of the two stories being kind of unfolded um, and structurally incredibly ambitious, I thought, because structure interests me. Um, It seemed to me, I don't know if I've got this right or wrong, but it seemed to be like a koru. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you intended that? Yeah, yeah, so the stories... Thank God I got that right. 
But you give you give her an entire life. You start from her being called into being. You mm. go down under. How, what? How much work did that take? Because there are so many tangible, visceral details to her life that make it feel. Who's read it? It feels like it's a very immersive book. You feel you are in her world completely, and I. I, I it just seems to me like there's an incredible amount of work you must have done to get all of that in there in the, in the way that you have done it. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of research. Um, and very foolishly, perhaps, I guess at the beginning of thinking about Kurangaituku, it was going to be from the beginning of time, which it still is. So it starts in Tikori, because that's where everything starts, always starts in Tikori. Um, and I was going to stretch it to the end of time, which I sort of have cheated a little bit because it does kind of go in that way. Um, but originally it was going to be like the literal end of time kind of thing. Um, that turned out to be a bit of a bigger task <laughs> than I had anticipated. Um, but yeah, I, I did a lot of research about um, yeah, everything, anything I could find um, about about how storytelling um, was pre-colonial times. Um, a lot of work in it actually is rhythmical and kind of at syntax level, which I am sorry, come to a, a, a lively talk with writers and they're like, ah, oh, syntax, meh. Um, <laughs> I, thought, I, I thought it was incantatory um, and, and it sort of, a very old, ancient style of introducing a storytelling. That here, story has come. Here is the origin of the story mm. of life itself, and starting in darkness and nothing and so on. And um, and it sort of borrowed the technique of old, well, not borrowing. It is of itself, but it reminded me of old oral story techniques. Yes. You know, success. Homer. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, homework, which... I'm getting A's, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> but, Lloyd, can, can we ask, come to the fish and ask about your decision-making process and, and the way that you wrote the fish? Because, for me, it really felt like a book about absence and about the people left behind to piece everything together. The Odyssey is referred to quite a few times in terms of the older sister, Carla, who leaves, um, and and she's brought into the world through letters. And we learn through these letters that our, our character, our narrator, is that slippery kind of unreliable narrator because he, he says things in his letters that are beautifully magical about the fish swimming up and down the bath, mm. holding his breath, and Carla has to ask him, you know, are you telling the truth? And so I wondered... As you were writing it, did you know that you were going to write those absences? Did you did you know that the fish's mother was never going to? Sorry, everybody. Say <laughs> <laughs> it. Say it. But <laughs> what kinds of decisions did you have to make as you were creating your narrator, but also the fish, who is a very beguiling, mm. perplexing character? Well, one thing is just to hold your nerve uh, and and keep this thing going. Um, it's one of the things that appeals to me about fables at their core is an imaginative risk really. And um, so 
uh, to some extent, I don't know what's going to happen when I'm writing. It is an act of exploration. Um, I'm not sure where it's going to land until it's landed, you know. Um, but nonetheless, it's it's so strange how um, what you think you're making up is tracing out something already known to you. Um, and certainly the absences you, 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 you're talking about, um, um, it's an opportunity. Um, there are, there's only one witness to this life, um, and um, he's writing to Carla, so everything is invested in him. So the conundrum is this. What can you tell of a situation you can't see entirely into? You know? mm. um, so there's an opportunity to be inventive. The other thing I'll say about this is, is um, uh, right at the start, um, he's over at the next door neighbour's place, and this woman has one book in the house. It's Moby Dick, mm. and she's 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 not she she says, oh, you know, it says here that a whale bit his leg off, but we know why would he just bite a leg off? You know, um, why not all of them? And, and uh, she's a little incredulous, you know. And he says, well, do you think it's true? And, and uh, she says, well, she says, do you think it's true? And she says, well, does it have to be? Is it, can't it just be an idea? Yeah. Uh, and so, in a way, it's, uh, that sort of lodges in him. Um, so the fish is really his, his Moby Dick, I suppose. Mm. Um, and the other thing, if I can just say, uh, there's this another scene down by the river um, where he happens upon a couple having sex in, in the back seat of the car, and the woman, the man is angry as hell when he sees him, but the woman calls him over to the other side of the car and asks him to, if she can just hold on to his wrist, and then they resume having sex. And, but his, he can't see it. He's looking over the top of the car. So he's connected to an event he can't see very much the situation in his family. Mm. He's connected, but he can't really make sense of it all. There's a quote in the book that I've written down because for me it is the heart of the whole thing and it says, he's, he's talking to Carla who has asked him who got the fish's mother pregnant. It, it's a mystery in the book that we don't, we don't even know. And he says, I tell her I don't know. I was too young. I could not see the fullness of the lives I was connected to. And it, I just, it encapsulates everything, I think. And, and it made me wonder, and I feel like this is maybe the crux of our conversation, is why is it that these forms of storytelling can tell us the truth? And it feels like an ongoing conversation about the nature of fiction. But why is fiction truthful? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, <Go>. Lloyd. <laughs> <laughs> Go. Write a thesis on the fly. Well... Kuranga Toku, it feels like you're telling truth about why this character needed to tell her own story. Yeah. She tells us why she got written out because of the colonial ways of storytelling that wrote her away. Mm. So there's a lot of truth in this book. And there is, actually, she does say that um, the Tui and the Kaka sing different songs, but yeah. they both sing the truth. So, yeah, I think there's, there's truthiness in fiction because of the, of the lies. Yeah. <laughs> because you have a fish baby that becomes more than just the baby. It becomes the narrator's inability to um, 
see what a young child, well, see what an adult might see in, from an adult's point of view. It's um, the child can't articulate what an adult might see, but also a chance to impress Carla a bit, I think, um, to that magic that storytelling has to, to draw people in. So I think, yeah, there's like an emotional truth to mm. fiction that, yeah, I think that's what holds us. I think because we, we are creatures that, that need story to figure our lives out. We are constantly telling ourselves our own story. Mm. And we usually make ourselves look a bit better in that story too. Mm. So I think we're like, we're used to having that little bit of, of light to give the shine to the, the truth. And Lloyd, I, I mean, I keep wondering about the decision around the character of the fish and because he doesn't really speak for himself ever. He's, we're always seeing him through someone else's eyes. And was there ever a temptation to, to flip that or was it always going to be through this narrator's eyes and, and that is the point of the book? In an earlier draft, I did write in the first person from the fish's point of view. Oh. But then I couldn't... I, could, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm, that's just a literary trick. I'm not really... Mm. Why, why have I done that? It hasn't landed anywhere interesting. Um, but then when I kind of made the idea of a fish a construction, because he is, of this family's anxieties and shame, uh, then it became more interesting. And then the, mm. and the need to create the fish was, was much more evident. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And because, because he... I mean, I'm interested because reading reviews and listening to people's interpretations of the fish, I get a sense that people want to try and categorise this character. They want to say... People have read him in quite different ways. And I wondered if, if that was how that feels for you as his creator? It's what a really difficult question, you know, because yeah. um, part of me wants to make something up on the fly and another mm. part doesn't want to say anything because <laughs> mm. I don't want to take the, the space that the reader of the reader, I don't want to tell a reader what to think. Mm. Whatever a reader may think is actually correct. And um, whatever a reader brings, and don't forget, I always feel, you know, like it's a well-known sort of thing, that this, a, a, a reading experience is a collaborative act. The reader brings their experience to the text. And, and whatever they create out of that is fine. Uh, so I don't want to give any idea that there's a right and wrong. And to be quite honestly, um, the ambivalence is something I was, I was trying to attain. Because at various times, the fish is an it, and mm. at other times it's a he. Mm. Now, the person who isn't named in the whole thing is his mother. Yeah. Mm. And she's ethereal and, and wild. And, you know, she's, she's the more obvious candidate to have a name. Um, the fish also has a name. Um, and he sort of grows into that name. But um, I don't know. I think, I think when, you, when, you, when, the, when the fantastic sort of bubbles into everyday life, it's not actually the fantastics, the most interesting thing. It's mm. the lives around the fantastic. Mm. So the, the reaction of the family around the fish is the, most, the more mm. interesting and odd. And maybe thing. that ambiguity is, is part of the answer to the truth in fiction because that is where the reader imparts their own truth. Yeah, I love that um, 
idea that of the gap between um, the writer and the reader. Like the story lives here, doesn't live here or here. We're, we're kind of making it together. I love that kind of idea of, um, yeah, that mm. through the medium of a book we're talking, um, we're creating together. I once heard James Heaney describe it as this, that when a person is being read to, they inhale it, and by the time they exhale it, they've made it their own. Mm. Yeah. Oh, Seamus. <laughs> well, one, but one question I did have is, what is the distance between you and this character and you and that narrator? Because I feel, I am in my readerly way, <laughs> reading that you feel very connected like, how close are you and how close are you to that narrator? Because I really couldn't help thinking about your memoir. And is this for you a, a, a writing of a truth and extended? Because that is the nature of mythology, is that these stories keep coming back. They keep iterating. They have a framework there that is telling us something that we need to continuously work out. And I, I just wondered what the distance is. Like, how much are you working out for yourself through these characters? Lloyd. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was looking very interested in your reply there. Um, oh, well, in, actually, in this instance, it's a lot of it is kind of dredged up from my, my own childhood. Um, and the caravan was very, very real, you know. Mm. Um, and, um, um, and so was the storm and bringing those two things together you know, well, if the fish is a fish, the fish is going to survive a storm like this. Mm. Um, but does it? Yeah. Does he or it? Um, that that distance, the gap between the eye, the authorial eye and the, the narrator is always an interesting one. I think it dovetails. I think you sort of move in and out of something that's approximately you and, and some other eye that is more speculative. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a bit telling, isn't it? Um, <laughs> you did wear wings. I did wear, I did wings, wear wings, and I do dress up as Kurangaituku quite a lot. Mm. So, yeah, there was a point in time where I felt like Kurangaituku was taking over my life, and <laughs> she was a lot. So I had to like create rituals around getting into work just because I needed to separate me from Kurangaituku and not be... Um, this great, not crazy, this very intense um, bird type person. But I think there was a thing that I, I, I excised from the book where I wrote, a, I put myself actually in the book as well, and I was apologizing for being a terrible writer, um, apologizing to Kurangaituku for being a poor vessel for her voice. So at one point, I kind of imagined myself um, in the book, Kurangaituku speaks through a tui through a tui that can, can speak. Um, so at some point in time, I imagined myself as that tui as well. So she was very much close to me, but talking through me rather than like me pulling this from my life. I mean, you do pull things from your life, mm, like emotions. Yeah. You have, there's no way that you, you can divorce the humanity from a human act like writing, but yeah, I needed a bit more space um, eventually. How did you get that space? I know. Have I 
Have I succeeded in getting <laughs> that space? Am I just telling myself truth, truthy lies again? Um, I don't know if I have, to be quite honest. But when I was writing it, I would kind of say a little karakia or, um, yeah, make, make the space, the space where I was writing and then try and close that again when I was finished, just so I could, like, fuck or no, I guess, back, back into real life. Because, again, going back to what we were saying about Parako before, Kurangaituku is an entity, a real entity to me. Um, you are talking about magical realism before, um, which in Māori literature, and I think in, in South American literature too, I kind of push back on. I think what we call magical realism is actually our way of viewing the world. It's just... It's, rea it's, it's a real... It's realism. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we, and also we, we think that it was created, you know, by Gabriel Marquez, and mm. it wasn't. I mean, it's been it's, it's been around ever since storytelling began. I mean, mm. The Little Mermaid, mm. Hans Christian Andersen. What is that if it's not magic realism? These, these mermaids swimming up to the surface to look at the human world and and swimming back down, and the two worlds sort of coming together in the way that they do. Um, if you if you said this was written by um, Calvino, um, you would be happily accept that, you know. Mm. And uh, yeah, one one thing I was I was going to ask you. I was reading the other day uh, Marina Warner. She's a terrific writer on on fairy tales and, and and so on. She made a really interesting point that's pertinent to your book, I think. And she was saying that the consciousness of people. The, the ancients is different from the consciousness of people today. That people, um, the ancients didn't feel they had agency, um, that they were inhabited by, by gods, that everything that happened to them, their fate, destiny, their moods, there was an explanation that wasn't within them, was within out. There was a god that was blowing early over their, over their lives and, and this kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then there's... Where's this going, <laughs> well, uh, well, and then there's a moment where, um, where she's in the cave. A moment, I think you might even say, or she develops, um, she becomes self-conscious for the first time um, when she sees in 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 Patu's uh, expression, she sees some judgment of him and her and then looks in the bird's expressions and sees that too mm -hmm. and suddenly has a sense of how she's being judged. Yeah. And then when he names her, she feels like her world, something had fallen over. She's yeah. been, been known, she's known now, yeah. Whereas before yeah. she was sort of ephemeral, I guess. Did you feel... so? When you were writing this book, did you have any fear around pinning this character down into a page, into a novel in that way? No. But strangely, I had that, that kind of thought that we were talking about before, about that in putting the book, I knew that it would be read by many people and that the many people would be reading it in different ways. Mm. So... While I was specific in the writing, I think in the reading she becomes multitudes again. Mm. Um, so I wasn't scared of, of that. I was a bit wary because I am taking liberties with people's papa with 
um, Purako. Um, but sort of where you were talking before about being moved by, by gods or whatever, I felt like I had to. Mm. And that's it's not a defence, but um, there was no way I could live my life without getting this, this yeah. the words out. That's not necessarily like I didn't anticipate that it was going to be published or anything like that. You know, fingers crossed, all that kind of thing when you're a writer. But um, yeah, for my own peace. I needed to, to write the story, to tell the story. Um, does that answer your question? Probably not. Well, in the way in the way of Pudako, in the way that they exist in multiple forms across time, do you how has the reception to this novel felt for you and that it will continue to possibly iterate again in future? That's what I'm hoping. Like People are like, oh, is this like the Kurungai Toku story? It's like, no, mm. oh, it's a Kurungai Toku story. Even in the spelling of her name. Um, so some people spell her name Kura Ngai Toku, like I've done here. Um, and some people spell her name Kuru Ngai Toku. So, um, you know, she, she shifts mm. around the place. Well, story shifts generally. Yeah. Story is very mutable from one generation to the next. Stories get changed and as they they get told again, you know. Mm. And that's yeah. what I'm hoping, is that, you know, this is a, a story, but there'll be more stories. Mm. Um, yeah. And but we, um, we will go to audience questions um, soon-ish. If you do have a question, um, think of them now. We would love actual questions <laughs> and there will be um, microphones I think brought to the front of the stage so just start thinking of those of those now so Lloyd in the in the writing of this book I'd love to kind of go back again to the Wahine disaster and the world building of the novel because it is very situated in a specific place and time um, there are a lot there are not a lot, but there are references to cultural moments, there are influences. So why and and that now I feel like the insights you've given us is because of what you're drawing from in your own life. But what did you is there a real truth to that world or is that world also slightly slippery? Um well they don't happen in isolation, these stories. They're, they're, it's, it's of its time, not back then, the 60s, but uh, uh, the story is written in, uh, about that period, but it's actually in conversation with a more current debate about identity, mm. uh, politics of identity, who gets to, to name, uh, what do we name, how do we call things. When we call things incorrectly, distortions arise. Um, so, I'm, you know, it's aware of, when you're writing it, you're not in some sort of vacuum. I am aware of the noise, the cultural noise around me, and the fact that it's just set when it is, it doesn't mean to say it's not in conversation with contemporary time. I think, I th that's how I think of it anyway. I, I really think it's of this current spirit of time, uh, even though it's using events from, from back there. Well, there's, there's also a question around memory in this book because in some ways it feels like someone who is trying to look back and fill in these absences and make sense of a life that was misunderstood for a very long time. So I, I, I did want to ask about that because it does feel like part of the heart of the story is this 
question of memory. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's a, a regathering, a recollection, um, um, and only when he's somebody about my age and is sort of more able to, he can. The book begins with a very innocent, childlike eye on the world, and then ends with a, a you know, the voice of experience mm. um, and a slightly contrite. Which, which is <laughs> similar to Kudonga Toku in a way. Like she starts in this beautifully innocent her eyes are opened yeah. in the world like literally yeah. literally opened yeah. and and th- and that is one thing in that when I first got this task I was like god these books are very different <laughs> but but actually there's some really beautiful similarities in that way and and I think that also that is the heart of this conversation is that these stories do help us come from one place of innocence into a different place at the end of it and I wondered Lloyd for you in particular at the end of the story, you get a sense of this this guy, he, he's now older, he has finished this book, and he leaves that caravan, and there's a lightness, maybe a freedom. I mean, it's a very sad book, but you feel perhaps he's better now <laughs> for writing it. And I wondered if you felt better for writing it. <laughs> <laughs> These things were never asked to writers in the old days. You know. <laughs> new, new gen, yeah. hashtag new gen. Um. <laughs> Oh, God, I was bloody happy I was finished with it. <laughs> uh, no, I mean... Now you, know, you have to go through this. Um, <laughs> well, it's no accident that the um, he's finished the story writing in this crappy old caravan that he's hung on to because the caravan, in a, in a way, is the nest egg of the story. Yeah, or the uh, womb, according to the, Vincent the womb. Sullivan. Yeah, the womb, yeah, yeah. Um... um well, yes, you're right. He steps away feeling lighter in himself, like you do when you shake off a bit of you're unburdened from something, I suppose. He's worked something out and all this sort of thing. Um, and if I can just bring it back to you. <laughs> uh, well, no, I, I just, as you were talking before, Claire, I was suddenly thinking about these different registers that mm. I st- mentioned a little bit. Um, there's a kind of confessional um, yeah. tone. But there's a certain point there too where I felt that you were making a case for, you know, um, which was sort of interesting. The tone, the tone shifted from um, the fantastic into an everyday kind of insistence about how things really are. Here are the facts. Here are the facts. I think you used that line actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I liked the idea, yeah, it's that kind of reclaiming of voice and reclaiming of the story. Um, but she is slippery, like your characters too. I mean, she says it's the facts, but is it? Mm. Can you trust her? Mm, probably not. Um, but she does have an agenda in the book, and that's, it was very clear to me, hopefully it's clear to everyone else, that she did want to be live in your head again. She mm. wants she wants to, like, be in everyone's head. Um so in a way, she's beguiling you in the beginning, and then when she's got her hooks in you, she can like. So you're her agent. Her. I am letting her I into am. our heads. Sorry, That's so brilliant. <laughs> um, do we have questions from the audience? Uh, do we have microphones already? At the back, they're at the back. Um, so if you have questions, please it's make also your way. The to point the of these stories too. Mm. Um, you know, um, why tell this story? 
yeah. back 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 then. And you know, you, I think you mentioned for social cohesion and, and this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, um, it's one thing to say, be fearful if you leave this camp. It's quite another to say there's a monster out there that's waiting to devour you that has an appetite for human flesh. Yeah. So the value of story, a cautionary story, um, quite important, I think. Uh, always been important, I suppose. Story is cautionary in that effect. Mm. But um, with myth in particular, there's a reason for these stories to be told. Mm. Yeah. It's the way we survived. That's why mm. we're yeah we're here still because. We didn't go into those forests with the, with the monsters, perhaps. Someone brave did. Um, while we're waiting for some questions, I wanted to ask you both about your influences. I've got a question. Oh, we've got a question. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, we're going to come back to that one. Saved. Um, uh, kia ora. Um, hello? Can you kia ora. Okay, great, great. Uh, yeah, it was real interesting. You kind of touched on how there was the story of Moby Dick and there's an idea about like uh, one of your characters questioning whether uh, a sperm whale would eat a leg <laughs> and it was like oh it doesn't it doesn't actually matter that we're you know that we're warning about the sperm whale you know, like it's there's just this kind of idea in that that's intriguing for a story, but at the same time, like, do you think there is room in a Moby Dick story for, uh, like, someone who actually knows about sperm whales to be like, you know, like, you know, like, is is there space within the the myth of Moby Dick that that could like round things more and you know because they kind of do the same thing with shark week right like they're asking can i rewrite moby dick <laughs> I, I, i'm asking if there's space you know if there's room like within the monolith of literary 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 storytelling that there's room for like more are you saying do you think we should have an annotated moby dick by a whale expert is that what you mean <laughs> To insert that, uh, I, I'm just. I guess it's like the the thing that m makes me interested in that thought is the fact that, like we like, even though it's nice to have stories that say be wary of the ocean and be wary of these things, like it it might also be great if it's like oh you know sperm whales they chill like you know like <laughs> like, <laughs> like I I think that is you it know, rebalancing. Maybe, yeah, maybe well. that's maybe that's maybe I'm inspired by the Kurungaituku story. I'm like, where's where's the sperm whales? Yeah, I should put more sperm whales <laughs> in my book. Um, well, where, where's the voice of the whale? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, or or go. like, as an author who is trying to find a device to warn okay, people I about. Okay, I think we might just go with: Is there room for a voice of the whale? Let's, we'll leave it there. Yeah, no, I, Thank you. I tried. I'm so Thank sorry. Thank you. No, it was great. <laughs> it was a very provocative question. Actually, it, your question is really, uh, can stories be rewritten? And mm. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the whole history of literature is a rewriting. You know, it's just story being written over the top of old stories and, and so on. And you can actually, you can find threads from, um, from contemporary stories all the way back, you know, to the beginning of time, mm. you know. 
the book of Job, Old Testament, that story is being told a gazillion times in different different ways, different and forms. And in Moby Dick. Yeah. yeah. So it's a quest novel. Yeah. yeah. And that is what the fish kind of is all about, isn't it? Is this quest, these people that leave have these adventures, but it's told from someone who is left behind. And there's these, the Odyssey. So we've got Homer, we've got Robinson Crusoe, we've got Moby Dick, and, and these are what our, our narrator is. They're little touchstones. Um, uh, they're somebody growing into, some, a young person growing, into, growing a literary conscious um, and suddenly being aware that what one is reading on the page um, finds some correspondence in one's life. Mm. You know? um, and there's a bit there where he's, he's talking about, he has to write an essay, I think, on Penelope, you know, mm. in the Odyssey, um, stitching the shroud and unstitching it. It's about time, playing for time. And, um, and you know, um, and it's about an absence, you know, waiting for Odysseus to come home and all this sort of thing. And he's waiting for his older sister to come home. And she has all these stories, which really, her, she's an unreliable narrator Yeah, too. her stories so do not match with yeah, reality. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that, that's, I, I didn't really want to spell that out. I was just hoping mm. that perhaps readers would... No, make that, that I think the narrator was very much Penelope for me. Mm. Like, unstitching his memory and then putting them back in a new... Um, tapestry. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for that question. Um, do we have another one? I can't quite. See. Yes, we do. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I, you kind of answered my question before by answering um, the previous question. I was basically going to ask, um, without the cultural context that both your books have fitted into or have been written from, how do you think they would fit? Like, how do they? How do they become relevant to other people? Oh, purely yeah. from a perspective of like I've. I can answer that question. Um, um, and being told that it's yeah. not relevant for everyone. Well, I, some years ago in Germany, a literary critic said to me, "We know you," and he, he d didn't really mean me specifically. He meant a white person from a colonial society. And he f his assumption was if he knew a white South African's writer's story or a white Australian's, you know, story, then he knew them all. And at first I was kind of resentful about that because, you know, the special thing about writings in the particulars and, and here you were being just sort of written off. But I actually know what he was after. He was after this story because this story can't be told anywhere else in the world. It is of this place. There's no question about it. The language and um, the fauna and flora, everything about it is integrated into here. And so when you have conversations about national literature, I've always been a bit wary of those sorts of conversations. Um, and in the past, I kind of rejected it, but I'm not sure that I'm right now. Um, um, and and maybe, maybe it, this is all about a kind of a shift you, you're representing here, Fiddy. Oh, uh, and, and breathing life into these old stories, giving them a currency. So if you were going to give a book to somebody visiting this country or it's a book, tell, give me a story here that says something about your place that's particular to your place. I think you would go for that book. Yeah. Thank Does that sort of... Yeah, no, um, I'm Palestinian but grew up here. 
Um, and my story is just as relevant, but doesn't necessarily apply to it, anyone and everyone. And I kind of, I think I feel so like you hold it. There's, in this specific there's place. a beauty in yeah, being really specific it. about your story and your um, experience and the culture that it comes from that makes it paradoxically universal. Yeah. Like, if you're really specific about it, about a place, then people from everywhere, like, um, people from overseas have been really kurangaituku, were afraid that they wouldn't get it. But they're like, oh, no, we get it. Like, we don't get some of the language, of course, but <laughs> we, you know, we get it. Um, whereas if I'd been quite vague about it and tried to kind of second guess where it might have been for overseas readers, I don't think they would have resonated with it as well because, like we were talking about before, there's an emotional truth about mm. being true to your story, mm. um, which people recognise. But it's that inhale and exhale. And telling the story yeah. that only you could tell. You. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, story, we ju it's a universal thing. We can mm. understand it. Mm. If we're just given a little bit of information, because mm. we are the map makers. When we're reading, we are making the story. Mm. We just need a little bit of information, detail. It doesn't matter where the de detail is coming from the other side of the world or here mm. or whatever. You know, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Mm. Great gift. Mm. You know, you think about how stories, the same stories sort of crop up. I mean, you know, there's the, the bird man uh, was, was back in Mesopotamia, for mm. goodness sakes, and, and Easter Island, all over the Melanesia. Yeah. Um, same sort of motifs keep sort of surfacing mm. and, and but being spoken of in different ways, you mm. know. So I'm never sure whether it's because the, the architecture of the brain is the same, you know, for, for people across the world that we are wired in a particular way to grasp the story, or whether it was because of the diffusion of story. You know, we're used to the idea of um, the Silk Road, you know, goods being dispersed along the Silk Road and so on. But so was story. Mm. Story was being dispersed, you know, from the Middle East through the Levantine, up through Turkey into Poland, Germany, all mm. these stories in flux. And so you get the same story being retold. You know, um, um, yeah, yeah, but you've got Cinderella being told in one part of the world. Do you know there's a ninth, ninth century version of it in Japan? Mm. Instead of a glass slipper, it's a gold slipper. Mm. Now, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of that idea that these stories and, and kind of what we're talking about with these particular kinds of stories, that they're so expensive that they can fit in multiple voices of a whale. They can fit in with these idiosyncratic ways of telling them millions of times over probably it, it's it's a uh, it's an enormous <laughs> subject <laughs> um, i think we have one more question at the back there thank you um, kia ora koutou, ko Martin Aho. um i think in, in answer to the question is fiction truthful a lot of fiction is autobiographical isn't it and i think you two have both touched upon that in the conversation today um so i just want to make an observation my question would be um lloyd i love mr pitt so it's really great to meet you today. I actually loved it, and in fact, I book-crossed the book, and it's gone all around the world, and everyone loved it too. So it's really great to get that New Zealand story out there. And I was just wondering if, if you could sell the fish to me, because I've not read it. Is there any sort of connections between that book and the current book? <clears throat> They're both in English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote both of them. Yeah, I wrote both of them. Uh, look, you know, when we talk about truth... Oh, thank you, by the way. Um, yep. um, 
when we talk about truth, we're really talking about the persuasiveness of language. We either believe or we don't. Mm. And, and um, why do we believe? It's because of the voice that sits behind the words on the page. It's because of the detail we recognise as being described accurately. Mm. These sorts of things. That's, I think that's what we mean when we're talking about truth in fiction. Mm. The words are the truth. That's not. Okay, I think um, I'm sorry. It's just that you're not on a microphone, so no one else can hear you. Sorry, you can perhaps chat afterwards. Um, I think we have time for one final question at the microphone at the back. Um, kia ora. I just wanted. To, I was just interested to know how. With your characters, I know um, with uh, with Lloyd's character and his the fish book, if um how if your characters you'd already decided who your characters were before you wrote the book, or if the characters developed while you were writing it. Um, well, I I always think character is the sum of interactions. So as as you they character is revealed through action. And you don't really know who these people are. You discover who these people are. You know, they, they're sort of empty vessels to start with. Um, but as they move through the space of story, um, they become who they're going to become by dint of what they say and what they do. Um, I know that there are writers who have notes about characters and so on. I've never been... I've never done that. I've never written a plot line. I've not done anything like that. It's just, it's always been, uh, to have it, for it to have a little bit of magic, it has to happen as if it was a little bit of magic mm. on the page, you know? So for the reader to feel, get that spark, I've got to feel that spark. And if it's already, it's like painting by numbers if you do it any other way, if you just map out a, a storyline or something like that, yeah. I do a little, little bit of both. Oh, yeah. um, so start off with sort of an idea, but usually I'm wrong, and my character will tell me that. Um, but I like to like act my characters too. So for Kurangaituku, for instance, I'm short, she is not. <laughs> so trying to imagine what the world would look like from literally her perspective um, mm. was a bit of a leap, I guess, yeah. for character. So I had to kind of go a, a bit of background um, research to get to those sort of ideas. But yeah, it's mostly through her interactions and her actions um, on the page. Oh yeah, that you yeah. discover who she is. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for that question. Yeah. Thank you so much for that hour that flew by. Thank you for your magic. Um, they really are two extraordinary novels. Um, and I can see them living on in lots of ways in the ways that these stories continue to live on in our minds. So thank you very much. Thank you for those great questions. Thank you for coming. Um, Fitty and Lloyd will be out at the author signing table um, if you would like to get your book signed, buy the book, um, and continue some conversations if you would like to. And Please thank give you, Claire. our authors. Yeah, thank you, yeah. Claire. Pleasure. Yeah. So fun. Good thank talk. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Tanakwe. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, 
writersfestival.co.nz.